Heavenly Father, what a privilege and a blessing, Lord, to have a Bible that we can open up and we can hear your word, hear you speak to us. You still speak even today, Lord, in a, in a culture and in a, in a world that seeks to, to push you out, Lord, and pretend that you are not there. You are the eternal God, the majestic holy God who still speaks in and through your word. And I pray that this morning that as we approach your word that we would do it reverently, that we would do it with attentive hearts, that we would remove, Lord, any distractions from our hearts and our minds, Lord, and what we're going to be doing the rest of this day or this week. Father, this is the most important main event of our Sunday morning when we get to hear from you, Lord. Be with us, Lord. Challenge us to be people who, as we begin a new year, think about life and ministry in a Christ-centered way. We ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, as I think back of my uh, seminary experience, um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I've talked to many brothers who went to seminary, even the seminary that I went to locally, the Master Seminary, uh, just about 10, 15 minutes away from here. And there are different perspectives from different guys. You know, generally speaking, I find that most seminary students, even though they would uh, admit in their best moments, the spiritual moments, that they were really thankful for seminary. By and large, you hear a lot of complaining, you know, and you hear a lot about how hard seminary was and all the studies and it was rigid for them and it was difficult. And of course, in their spiritual moments, they would say, this is a great time at the seminary. I loved it and all of that. But generally speaking, there's a lot of of whining and complaining. And I got to tell you, for me, It took so long for the Lord to open up a door for me to be able to go to seminary. Seven years and what I expected, later than what I expected, that by the time I got to seminary, I was so eager to get in there and learn and to sit under some of these men who who were at the seminary. And I think the other thing that really impacted me was having gone to other countries and seeing some of these men in other countries who don't have the opportunity that we have here in America to learn from godly men like that who have studied the Word of God so in-depth. I saw men on the mission field, pastors, missionaries who were working two or three jobs Uh, just to be able to make it in ministry. And when we gave them books from the states that were solid theology, they would start crying because they didn't have resources like that. It caused me to to, to appreciate my seminary experience tremendously. And um, I love the theology. I love getting into the languages. I love sitting under some of these godly men who were missionaries and scholars and pastors and, and just churchmen who were highly committed churchmen, and they wanted to train at a high level. I love that seminary experience. I love the assignments, believe it or not. I, I appreciated the assignments um, and being challenged in rigorous study because I knew that ultimately at the end of the day, one day I would get an opportunity to be able to do this with a congregation like you. And be able to, to edify the body of Christ by the strength that God supplies. I, I longed for that. Even the assignments were cherished. And one of the assignments that was so cool toward the end of seminary was uh, um, everybody had to write a philosophy of ministry document. Where you basically take everything that you've learned, right? Um, uh, and you, and you, you, you basically put together a document about how those principles and that knowledge and that theology, all what it looks like, how it fleshes itself out in the context of a local church. And I love that because now we're taking theology and, we're, and, and all the information and we're, and we're asking the question, what does it look like in the context of the local church? 
With real people. What does real ministry look like? How does this all flesh out? And for me, it was, it was a great assignment. For some guys, they were whining and complaining. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we have to do that at the end of seminary again. You know, some of the guys had come in from out of state and they were eager to, to leave already. And they were, they were dreading. For them, a philosophy of ministry document was a dread and a drudgery. For me and for other guys there, it was like, wow, this is a wonderful privilege and a wonderful opportunity to put together a philosophy of ministry statement like that. Well, as we begin this new section in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, we have a wonderful opportunity to see the ultimate philosophy of ministry passage, if you will. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, and I want you to go there with me. Colossians 1.24. This is a wonderful, powerful passage, and I'm so excited for the next three Sundays in particular, as we will be delving into this particular passage. This is Paul, the Apostle's philosophy of ministry, if you will, and really Christ's philosophy of ministry for us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints." to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry here. And really what God's message is to us as we embark, beloved, in 2016 individually and corporately into whatever ministry and callings and service that God would have for us. And if you remember, Paul has just finished reminding the Colossians of the preeminence and sufficiency of Christ in verses 15 through 20. And then he warned them of their need in the light of who Christ is to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that they have heard in verse 23. And at the end of verse 23, if you notice there with me, he tells them that he was a minister of the gospel. Paul is a minister of the gospel. And now in verses 24 to 29, he's going to elaborate, expand upon his personal ministry. And as he does, he gives us a a treasure chest of truth and important principles for you and I about the Christian ministry. These verses, of course, first and foremost, have to do with the Apostle Paul. And specifically the apostolic ministry, which was very unique in the history of the church, which Christ had commissioned him to. But as he, what he states here regarding his own ministry becomes so instructive for you and I as we carry out our ministries both as individuals and as a corporate body of Calvary Bible Church. I want to remind you this morning that you have a ministry to carry out on this earth. You do. You have a ministry to carry out. 
You see, beloved, we have so professionalized the Christian ministry in so many circles here in America that the typical Christian forgets that he or she is actually a minister of the gospel. Each of us, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, if you've turned from your sins and you put your faith in Christ and you've been reconciled to your Creator, He has forgiven you of your sins. You have a ministry to fulfill. Many Christians have become, however, more than, more than passive spectators or only passive spectators in the church pews. Rather than active, highly committed participants. We have many people who are essentially just sitting on the sidelines, looking for everybody else to do the work. Just passive spectators rather than active, highly committed participants. I want to remind you, just because you didn't go to seminary or Bible school or receive some specialized training doesn't mean that you are not called to serve or minister. Just because you don't have a a leadership title doesn't mean that you are useless or you're not needed in the church. Just because you have weaknesses and sins that you struggle with does not mean that you can't serve or minister because only perfect people can serve and minister. Just because you're in a particular season or stage of life, a unique season or stage of life, does not mean that God wants you to be on the sidelines, to be wallowing in self-pity, because after all, everybody else can do that which you can't do at this stage of your life. No. There may be seasons of life, beloved, where there might be unique moments, and we might have to, our service may look different or be directed somewhere in particular, but we are never, ever, 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 ever to be absolutely dormant and passive in ministry. Amen? Never. Every Christian is called to minister and to serve. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, speaking of believers, Peter says this, As each one, that is each believer, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Everybody is to be a highly committed participant, using their spiritual giftedness and abilities for the glory of God through Jesus Christ, he says there. And passages like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, all those passages speak of the necessity of each member of the body of Christ being a minister or a servant who is to use his or her own spiritual packet, if you will, spiritual gift set and abilities to serve Christ by serving other people. Each of us. None of us are exempt from this. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel, actively involved in ministry. Can I say this? Each of you, each of you is indispensable for the proper working of this body. Indispensable. You say, well, wait a minute, Kempis. I mean, everything that we have is given to us by God, right? Nobody's indispensable. Yes, in a proud and arrogant sense, we should not be thinking of ourselves higher than we ought to. But in a different sense, beloved, you have a spiritual gift set and abilities that nobody else can offer in this body. And you are indispensable in that sense. Now, because having this ministry mindset is such a crucial issue 
In these next three Sundays, I want us to focus on this overarching theme of Christ-centered ministry in the church, both personally and corporately. Personally, because each of us is responsible to do our part for the, for the good of the whole, contributing our gifts and our abilities for the good of the whole, for the building up of the body of Christ, but also corporately because we recognize that God does not call us to function in a mavericky, individualistic sense. You and I are called to be ministering in partnership with others for the building up of the body of Christ to the glory of Almighty God. This great section, verses 24 to 29, contains three foundations of Christ-centered ministry. Three foundations. And so today I want us to focus on that first foundation. Today we're going to focus in verses 24 to 25 on foundation number one. What is the right mindset that we ought to have in ministry? What is the right mindset that we ought to have? Next Sunday I want us to focus on verses 26 through 27. Foundation number two. What is the right message? What is the right message that we should be promoting and sold out for in Christian ministry. And thirdly, two weeks from today, foundation number three, we want to look at the right method in verses 28 through 29. What is the right method of Christ-centered ministry? So verses 24 to 25 this morning, I want us to see foundation number one of Christ-centered ministry, the right mindset. If there was ever a man who even given his own weaknesses, and his own vulnerabilities had the right mindset. It was the Apostle Paul. And this is huge for us, beloved, as we look at the example of this man, of this man's philosophy of ministry. If we want to be fruitful people, if we want to be useful people, we need to be committed to cultivating Christ-centered ministry. And the way that that begins is with the right mindset. Because the truth is that there is a wrong way, a sinful way of thinking, a sinful perspective that we can have as we serve or minister in the church. And there is a right mindset that brings glory to God and leads to the building up of the church of God for the glory of God. There is a wrong way of doing things and a right way of doing things. We must think rightly about ministry if we're going to honor the Lord. And so in verses 24 to 25... I want us to to look at four characteristics, four characteristics that we must cultivate in the way that we think about ministry, four characteristics that we may bring glory to the Lord. And at the end of the day, I know that you desire that your Christian service, that the way that you use your gifts and your abilities would be for the building up for the good of your fellow brethren. So I want us to, to ask ourselves Really, this is what I'm after. I want us to sit at the feet of God's Word and have our thinking recalibrated, rebooted here at the beginning of the year. So that these four characteristics may be at the forefront of our thinking, our mindset as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? First characteristic, characteristic number one of a right ministry mindset is this. You and I must be committed to cultivating an attitude of joy as we minister. Cultivating an attitude of joy in ministry. I'm sure you would admit this. This is perhaps the most challenging one to... It's so challenging to serve with joy, isn't it? It's easy to be task-oriented people, to go about doing the work of the ministry, and yet in the midst of doing that, just be duty-driven and not necessarily be doing it with the right heart motivation, and even more so doing it with joy, rejoicing. And notice what Paul says in verse 24. 
Even in the midst of his sufferings, he says, now I rejoice. I rejoice. And this this isn't unique to the book of Colossians, what he says here in verse 24. Paul was a man who cultivated a joyful attitude despite his trials and his afflictions. In fact, we've already been through chapter 1 of Colossians. The tone of Colossians chapter 1 as he addresses these believers is one of gratitude and joy. And the tone most of the time, with the exception of Galatians chapter 1 perhaps, is a tone of joy from the Apostle Paul even in the midst of afflictions. It's no different here in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice continually. This is his state of mind that he strives for. And sure, he had discouragement and sorrow. But he was a man who sought to cultivate joy. And the crazy thing about this is, think about it, Paul should not be rejoicing. Because where is he at right now when he writes the book of Colossians? In jail, on house arrest. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Paul, if we're going to measure having a right perspective to our circumstances based upon our circumstances, he should not be rejoicing because he's in jail. He is not in very favorable circumstances. The great Paul, confined, restricted, limited in ministry, a highly gifted believer, a church planter, a great evangelist, a great man who was an equipper of men at a high level. He is restricted and limited, and yet in the midst of all of that, how could he rejoice? Well, he can. Because Paul was a man who did not lose sight of the big picture. That is something that strikes me about the Apostle Paul. Constantly keeping his eyes and his focus by the strength that the Spirit supplied him with on the big picture. He says, I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings, he says. Paul understood that he had been called to be an instrument of gospel progress. And so his circumstances were subordinate to that greater purpose of the progress of the gospel. You know what's amazing? Paul did not forget, even as he addresses these Colossians and he says, I rejoice about the fact that in Acts chapters 19 through 20, he suffered greatly in Ephesus. And it it was because of those sufferings in Ephesus in Acts 19 through 20 that eventually the church at Colossae was founded and established through the preaching, presumably, of Epaphras. But that happened in the midst of his sufferings where he was, he was preaching the gospel there in Ephesus, and, and it spread all over Asia Minor, and other churches were founded during that time. See, he rejoices in that, because he has a, a view on the bigger picture of what's going on all over the world. For him in that day and age, he knew that in the midst of his sufferings, it was because of the sufferings of Christ that churches had been founded. This is not unique to, to, to Colossians. In Philippians chapter 1, had the joy of teaching through that a few years ago, and over and over again being reminded of the fact that to the Apostle Paul, he kept exhorting the Philippian believers, Philippians, in the midst of our own difficult circumstances and the challenging relationships, keep your eyes on the greater progress of the gospel. And Paul constantly exhorted and encouraged the Philippian believers, rejoice, rejoice, In that Christ is being proclaimed, he says, even in chapter 1 of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, he's he's talking in there about fellow preachers of the gospel 
who, 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 were, who did not like him, who rivaled him. And even in the midst of that, Paul says, I rejoice in that Christ is being proclaimed, even if relationally we are not on the same page. Even those who were his rivals, who according to that passage, I believe they were believers, they were preaching the right gospel. Even in the midst of rivalries, he still kept his eyes on the proclamation of Christ. He says, and in this, in that Christ is proclaimed, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. See, Paul kept his eyes on the bigger picture. And I guess for us, beloved, it does become easier. Not perfect, but easier when we do minister with a view of the bigger picture, right? For Paul... What happened to him was subordinate to the greater progress of the gospel. And see, for Paul, it wasn't just about getting the work done. It wasn't just about that. we got to be so careful in our American, especially Southern California, fast-paced society in the midst of of a rapidly growing media age, right? That we're not just about going through the motions and doing the duties of ministry even in the church. And we lose the heart behind that and the joy and the satisfaction and the sense of fulfillment that comes from glorifying God and doing a work well done for the glory of Christ to the edification of the people of God. See? It is one thing to do things out of duty. It is quite a challenge to do things with an attitude of joy. Amen? I mean, this is such a battle, a daily battle, beloved, because we are such task-driven people. We just want to get things done. The quicker, the better, right? We want fast food type of ministry, too. In the church, we want to get it done. Task-oriented individuals, we want to be highly productive, all the while not doing it with joy, not enjoying the process of, of serving Christ and serving His people, see? Many of us, and I'm this way as well, I focus on the end product, on the end product, but I don't enjoy the process. I don't enjoy the process. For others of us, It is a challenge to rejoice in ministry, especially when difficult circumstances or challenging relationships hit. Amen? That happens. As you minister, the longer you've been a Christian, and the more you get involved in ministry and get your hands dirty, the more you realize that there's this little problem that people have called sin, right? Just a little problem. You and I have a massive problem with sin. I remember one of my mentors telling me, Kempis, ministry would be easy were it not for people. Right? People are dirty, he said, and so are you. And very quickly, you're going to let people down. I remember a couple of our interns here at the church in the last four years. I remember them sitting there and initially, you know, these guys are so respectful and so, so just good brothers. And they come in thinking that you're like the perfect guy, you know. And I remember telling one of them at least, you know what, bro, I'm going to let you down in the next year. Multiple times. And I'm sure if you asked him now, he would say, Amen to that, brother. Many a times he's let me down. Ministry would be easy were it not for people, right? See? And so when challenging relationships, difficult circumstances hit, we lose perspective and we lose the attitude of joy. Because the reality of it is, is we live in a broken world and even there's, there's brokenness in the church. We're sinners saved by grace. We're highly deficient. We're not perfected. Even in the church, the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ has many wrinkles and spots and imperfections, right? And so we lose perspective. But beloved, rejoicing is a choice that we make. Amen? It is not based upon circumstances. See, if you look at the world all around you, 
the world, their happiness is based upon favorable circumstances, happenstance, the happenings of life. As long as those things are favorable and people experience prosperity and there's no problems or issues, right? There's happiness. But biblical joy is different. Biblical joy is more than just happenstance, the result of our circumstances, favorable or not. Biblical joy is an attitude, listen to me, an attitude which flows from a deep-seated confidence in God. A deep-seated confidence in God that God is in control of all circumstances for His glory and our good. That's where joy flows from. It's not some ecstatic laugh. None of us love to suffer, have some kind of masochistic kind of an attitude where we, Oh Lord, bring all suffering into my life. I love it. Right? And we walk around laughing hysterically when we suffer. None of us enjoy that. There's sorrow and there's brokenness. And we understand that. But in the midst of that, our joy is not sucked dry, beloved, because we know that God is ever there, right? There's a God consciousness there. I love Stephen Charnock. You need to read The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. You need to do that at some point. And it will take you years as it took me to do that. But he speaks about this, this God consciousness, being aware, not being practical atheists in the circumstances that we face so that our joy is sucked dry because all of a sudden God is nowhere to be found because we are not conscious of his presence. Biblical joy is an attitude which flows from a deep-seated confidence in God and a God who is infinitely in control of our circumstances for his glory and our good. And we lose our joy, beloved, when we take our eyes off of this relationship with Him. And we place it upon unfavorable relationships, difficult relationships, and difficult circumstances. There is only one unshakable, immovable, and constant reality on this earth that we can bank on. And that is the relationship that we have with Christ. That's the only thing. And if we keep our eyes off, uh, off of our circumstances and upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's trying to teach us through those difficult circumstances and those challenging relationships, beloved, He will empower us to be joyful people in ministry as we carry out our service. Everything else is subject on this earth to change and disappointment, especially in ministry. But the living, vital Love bond relationship with Christ, beloved, is to be the basis of our Christian joy. That's why Paul can say, I rejoice. And it was a mark of his, of his spiritual maturity to be a man who sought to live with that mentality in the midst of sorrow and suffering, to do so, suffer well with joy. You want to you wanna get a gauge for how spiritually mature you really are? One good gauge for how spiritually mature and stable you are is ask yourself this, what does it take to to take away my joy? What does it take in life to steal my joy away? How joyful of a person are you? Not do you suffer, not are there difficulties in your life, but how do you handle those? Do you tend to respond with joy? Do you tend to rejoice in the bigger picture of the progress of the gospel in the midst of your sufferings? Ask yourself that question. It's a very humbling question to ask, right? How joyful of a person are you? So Paul was a minister of the gospel who rejoiced. And this is particularly shocking when you consider what he rejoiced in. Namely, his sufferings, he says, in verse 24. That's characteristic number two of a right ministry mindset. 
an expectation of suffering. Not just an attitude of joy, but an expectation of suffering in ministry. We must arm ourselves, beloved, with the expectation that we will suffer. And here in verse 24, look at what Paul says. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And then he says, and in my flesh, this body, physically, I do my share on behalf of Christ's body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Notice that at the beginning of verse 24, the, the, those, those my sufferings that he describes, and he's talking about his, his present sufferings, his imprisonment for the sake of Christ, as he writes to the Colossian believers. But notice what Paul says also in verse 24. He says, I do my share on behalf of Christ's body, which is the church. And then he says, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So the question is, in what sense does Paul fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That word fill up appears in the New Testament only here. And it has the basic meaning of to fill in substance or content. And it implies that Paul was bringing something to completion in his personal life and ministry, namely Christ's afflictions. And the question is, in what sense was Paul bringing something in Christ's afflictions to completion? In Roman Catholicism, this is one of those verses that has been used in support of of purgatory. For those of you who have a history in Catholicism, you know this. Based upon this verse, they say, Christ's sufferings were not sufficient to cleanse us from our sins completely. That may be articulated actively or passively. That's the implication. So they say Christians must make up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings by their own suffering. But Paul here is not speaking about Christ's redemptive or atoning sufferings, is he? If Paul was saying that we somehow complete Christ's atoning or redemptive sufferings, then everything that he just said in the previous context about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and everything he's going to say after in the following context is worthless and contradicts and contradicting. He has just made the point that Christ is sufficient. Even his reconciliation work in verse 23 is sufficient. The other important note is this. The word translated afflictions in verse 24, Christ's afflictions is never used of Christ's redemptive sufferings in the New Testament. Never of his redemptive atoning sufferings. Listen to me. Christ's sacrifice and his atonement for sins, as Hebrews puts it, is once for all. No one adds anything to it. It is sufficient Upon breathing his, his, his last, Jesus on the cross in John 19.30 said this, It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? His atoning work for sinners. Complete. Sufficient. God was pleased and satisfied with the Son's sacrifice on the cross. Nothing can be added. Not even the Christian sufferings to the atoning work of Christ. So Paul sharing in or filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions has nothing to do, beloved, with Christ's atoning or redemptive sufferings. What Paul is talking about here has everything to do with our union with Christ, our connection with Christ. 
Listen, in his union with Christ, in his connection with Christ, Paul, as part of the body of Christ, suffered the rejection of Christ in his Christian experience as a minister of the gospel. And I want to remind us this morning that in like manner, we who are his people will suffer the reproach and the rejection when we make him known, when we serve Christ, when we share the message of Christ, beloved. You and I will suffer on behalf of the head who is Christ when he is rejected. That is our calling. This is not just the apostolic office of Paul. This is us as well. This is the ministry paradigm. All of us are called to suffer. Jesus said, if they rejected me, they will reject you. So in our union with Christ, when people reject us, they are doing it ultimately to who? To who, beloved? To the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what what Jesus said to Paul? Then Saul in Acts 9 when he first appeared to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Is that what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, me. In persecuting Jesus' disciples, Saul was persecuting Jesus himself. Why? Because as followers of Christ, we are members of his body, his church. I love how the Romanian pastor and missionary leader, Joseph Zanz, put it. Quote, Christ's cross, or his suffering, Christ's cross was for propitiation. Our cross is for propagation. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation on his behalf. End quote. So part of what God uses to advance his word and his gospel on earth is the sufferings of his people. Our sufferings as well. We follow and align the example of these great men beginning with the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered on our behalf, did he not? See, beloved, we need to be so careful, so careful here in America that we remember that suffering is part and parcel of our calling as believers. It would be very easy in our culture in America with all the freedoms that we have in a comfort-driven society to think that somehow we are not called to suffer just like everybody else around. Past, present, and future believers in Christ who have suffered. People who are being beheaded all over the world, right? In the Middle East right now. We're hearing these stories more and more common now. Believers being beheaded and butchered for their faith. And we can have this mentality as American Christians that somehow it's unjust if that happens in our country. Beloved, tell that to the believers in the history of the church and current believers in other places of the world who are being butchered for their faith. We don't deserve anything better. We don't. I get floored right now with hearing Christians... Even solid Christians screaming bloody murder right now at the fact that at some point in time in this country, perhaps we're going to lose our Christian freedom and there's going to be persecution in this country and we may not be able to to publicly worship the Lord. And they're yelling out, injustice! That is unjust! Tell that to our brethren all over the world who are already going through that, beloved. Who are already suffering that way. Who are sharers in Christ's afflictions in a very real way. Already in their bodies. Tell that to the Apostle Paul. Who took upon himself more than his share of sufferings for the sake of Christ. In fact, in Acts 9.15, 
God told Ananias that Saul was a chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And boy, did he ever suffer. Boy, did he ever suffer. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says in one summary of his ministry, listen to this. Are they servants of Christ? I far more, in far more labors, in far more imprisonment, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, on the sea, among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And then he says this, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on my, of, of my concern for all of the churches. You think we have problems? You think we have problems? Um, at the Shepherds Conference last year, one of the evening sessions, there was a special Q&A with four uh, pastors, one of them, Pastor John MacArthur, and at one point, they asked him, what would you say to these young men who are in here? You know, a packed room. What would you say to them about ministry that you've learned? And in his own words, Pastor MacArthur essentially said, guys, what did you expect? What did you expect in ministry? That it would be easy? What did Paul tell Timothy? Fight the good fight of faith. He says, it's like some of you guys have this mentality that somehow... Ministry is going to be easy for you and there's going to be no suffering. Boy, have I learned that lesson over and over again this past year. And I know many of you have as well. Amen? Ministry is not easy. And we have to embrace, expect suffering. Well, Paul had a, a history of unique sufferings. And they were upon his own body, beloved. He says, in, he says in verse 24, my sufferings in my flesh, he says in verse 24. Paul had not just suffered emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. He suffered physically for the sake of Christ. In fact, in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, he says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And that's a reference to his physical scars and his wounds. He had suffered for the sake of Christ. We haven't even come close to that in this country. And that utterly humbles me. Because I have not even come close to being beaten for my faith that way. See, many of us love salvation and the forgiveness of sins, and we should. But according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29... Paul says, for to us, or to you, Philippians, and us, Calvary Bible Church, it has been granted not only to believe in Him, but also to what? Suffer for His sake. And that word granted, there is the idea of grace. This grace has been given to you. Not only to believe in Him. We say, amen to that, salvation. Woo! Forgiveness of sins. He says, also this grace, that you suffer for His sake. We will suffer, beloved. And we must expect suffering and arm ourselves with that kind of mentality, with that right mindset that suffering will come. 
One pastor has written this, quote, Christ suffered in death to save the church, and believers suffer in life to help the churches, end quote. We might say the same thing, thing about our, ourselves. Christ suffered in death to save the church, and then put your name in there. And Kempis is suffering in life, dying daily to help the church, end quote. Think of it that way. And Christ will empower us to die daily for the sake of the greater progress of the gospel. What kind of suffering are we talking about? Not pain due to our unrepentant sin. Many people say, you know, they're, they're living uh, godless lives in sin. And they say, oh, I'm suffering for the Lord right now. That's not suffering for the Lord. If you're in, sin, in unrepentant sin, what you need to do is repent of your sin. Amen? Repent, turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ if you have not done that. That you may be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to your maker. And if you're a believer and you're living in unrepentant sin, don't call that suffering if you don't want to repent of your sin in private and conceal it. What we're talking about is, is suffering for the sake of the name of Christ, for His cause, being persecuted, being rejected, suffering shame for His name, reproach for His name, that people keep you at an arm's length because you've loved them enough to tell them the truth and love about the gospel and about Christ, and that they need forgiveness of their sins. If you suffer rejection for that, you are suffering. Expect it. It's going to happen, beloved. It's going to happen. Paul rejoiced in his suffering, and this was a challenge. But what made it worthwhile for Paul is that he had been commissioned with a particular ministry. And that's our third characteristic of a right ministry mindset. A commitment to faithfulness. A commitment to faithfulness. Paul was commissioned to carry out a ministry, and he was accountable for how he fulfilled that ministry. And I want to remind each of you this morning that you too, in having been saved, you have been enlisted as a soldier of Christ to serve Christ. And you and I must be committed to faithfully carrying out that which God has put you on this earth to accomplish until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. A commitment to faithfulness, beloved, must be something that we arm our thinking with even in 2016 as we carry out our particular ministries individually, corporately, in partnership with others. Let's be faithful. Let's be faithful. For Paul... This commitment to faithfulness was motivated by the fact that God had commissioned him. Look at verse 25. He says, Of this church I was made a minister. Of this church I was made a minister. That's a passive voice, meaning that God had done this to Paul. He had enlisted Paul. He had made him a minister. And then he says, According to the stewardship from God, from God bestowed upon me. See, Paul understood that his ministry was a gracious gift from God. Paul did not select himself. Paul did not have the right to serve God. He didn't go to seminary to earn a degree so that he could serve God. God had put him in this particular thing. And a very unique apostolic ministry, yes. He calls it a stewardship from God. It's a beautiful word, stewardship. It means a household manager or administrator. 
It has the idea of a, of a caretaker of someone else's property or possessions or precious belongings. Paul says this is a stewardship from God. This is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. God has graciously given it to me. And there's a responsibility implied in this that Paul needed to make sure that he fulfilled it. That he was faithful to it. That one day he was going to answer God. Answer to God for how he carried out the stewardship in this ministry. He says in verse 25, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, he says. We're going to look more closely at what this preaching of the Word of God, the content of Paul's preaching next Sunday morning. But notice that he again talks about fulfilling or carrying out something to completion. In verse 24, it was with reference to Christ's afflictions. Now it's with reference to fully carrying out the preaching of the Word of God. Similar terminology here. Paul wants to be faithful to completing his ministry to preach the Word. And later on, we're going to see in a couple of weeks that that preaching of the Word of God is centered on the focus on, uh, and focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece of the Gospel. Paul wanted to preach Christ and he wanted to be faithful. And we must arm ourselves, beloved, with that same mentality of being faithful. You know, for Paul, ministry was a privilege and not a right. Ministry was a privilege and not a right. If the God of the universe had commissioned him and graced him with the opportunity to partner with the God of the universe in this grand enterprise of the gospel, Paul was committed to complete his ministry. He wanted to be faithful. He wanted to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant Paul. He wanted to hear that. That must drive and motivate you and I, you see. It must I remember one mentor telling me early on in my Christian faith, Kempis, don't ever forget that ministry is a privilege and not a right. And if you remember that, then you will do well in completing and fulfilling that which God has called you to fulfill. But don't ever have the mentality that you deserve it. That this is a right that you have earned. Ministry is a privilege and not a right, beloved. It is so, so true, isn't it? You and I didn't earn the right to minister and serve the Lord. We don't deserve it. God doesn't owe it to us. Serving Christ is is a privilege. It is a blessing. We get the privilege to be a part of God's work here on this earth. Amen? And we have to do it with joy. Let's not ever forget that. Let's not ever develop this attitude or cultivate this attitude of self-entitlement because you run around with some degree or some secular degree that you may have, it doesn't matter, does it? At the end of the day, you're a sinner saved by grace, and it's a privilege if you have a particular choice ministry, beloved. And each of us should have it. It's a privilege to serve the Lord. And exalting Him is the ultimate goal, isn't it? If we recognize that ministry is a privilege, then exalting Him will be the ultimate goal And we're going to be committed to removing every obstacle, every hindrance, every sin, besetting sin in our lives that's keeping us from fulfilling our ministry, from fulfilling faithful service. We're going to remove every selfish pursuit. No obstacle, young people. If you want to serve Christ, there can't be any obstacle in your life. No idol. No idol. Christ wants to reign supreme in your heart and life. And he wants you to fulfill a choice ministry on this earth. 
And for us who are adults, same thing. Let's be this year about removing every obstacle, hindrance, and besetting sins, selfish pursuits, so that we may be faithful, beloved, to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mentality that we need to arm ourselves with. That is a Christ-centered mentality. So we've seen that this right mindset that we must cultivate is an attitude of joy, an expectation of suffering, a commitment to faithfulness because we know that God has called us and we want to fulfill His call. And fourthly, characteristic number four of a right ministry mindset is a devotion to selflessness. A devotion to selflessness. Few things will render you and I more useless and ineffective than an ongoing mindset of selfishness in ministry. And every single one of us struggle with this. Right? Many of us will say, what's the use? What's the use? People don't appreciate me around here. Why should I continue doing all of this? Is it even making a difference, Lord? It's not even making a difference. I give myself and my time and my resources and my family and everything that I could possibly give. I can't give any more, Lord, and it isn't making a difference. Does anyone see my labors? Anyone take notice? Where are the credits here? Where are the credits, people? Why isn't anyone helping me? Why isn't anyone helping me? Why do I feel like I and others are the only ones that are doing the work? See, we can all have those moments of weakness, right? And sometimes those things are very true. But if we live there, beloved, all of those sentiments expose our hearts and we will be discouraged people, joyless people who are doing things just out of duty, duty duty-driven rather than out of worship as an offering of sacrifice before the Lord in our service. Notice that Paul's selfless mindset And his service is shown here in verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He says in verse 24, on behalf of his body, Christ's body, who is the church. He says in verse 25, I do this for your benefit. You know what's a principle that we learn here? Ministry is not first and foremost for what we get out of it. It's not first and foremost for what we get out of it. Again, this is, this is counter-American Christianity, beloved. Where people come into the church and they expect a smorgasbord of programs and things for them to do for their family with no thought about the fact that they need to invest into the church and be fully engaged with the body of Christ. What Paul says here is, ministry is not about me. I'm devoted to selflessness. This is on behalf of Christ's body. My afflictions and my sufferings are for your sake, and I rejoice. It's all for you. It's all for you. For the intrinsic benefit and good of you, Colossian believers. We don't minister, beloved, for personal profit, self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-advancement, self-satisfaction, or self-appreciation, do we? It is good, and we should encourage one another to be affirming others, to be encouraging one another. Hebrews chapter 10, to be saying to one another, well done, good job, well done. That is a very good, loving act to do in the church, beloved. But at the end of the day, if you don't get that, that doesn't justify you being on the sidelines, okay? It doesn't. We don't do things 
in and of themselves, first and foremost, for self-appreciation. And yet, yet, when you serve selflessly and you strive not to think about yourself, how blessed you are. Amen? Have you been there? Have you ever felt that way? That sense of, of satisfaction when you know that you have served the Lord from pure motives? When you have sought to, to meet others' needs for their good, not for what you can get out of it? That is a Spirit-empowered thing. The Spirit of God has allowed believers of all people to live out this, this mindset of glorifying God in the meeting of needs, in the service of others. With the Spirit's help, beloved... It is a liberating and wonderful sense of satisfaction and joy that we can experience when we are devoted to selfless service. I got to see this on the mission field over and over again over the years. Brethren, who I'm still keeping in touch with now, many of these men are going to, I'm going to see at the Shepherds Conference again from all over the world, just selfless. A couple of families stand out. One family that always hosts us for years in Honduras. Years. And every time we go over there, every time there's breakfast served early in the morning, as early as we need to leave. If it's 6 a.m. that we need to head out to the airport, 5 a.m. they want me in their particular home for breakfast with the best kind of food. They grow their, their, their coffee beans in the backyard, so that's pretty sweet. And all their vegetables. Service and they won't sit down. And I remember the second year that I went over there, finally I said, Brother, sit down. It's okay. Let's interact. He says, Brother, what else do you need? He says, Son, get up. Go serve. Go, go get that particular thing that Pastor Campus needs. I mean, that, that is their, their culture there. Selflessly, constantly giving, relentlessly. Another brother, I remember, after the, the massive Haiti earthquake in Port au Prince getting to the airport, and I'm not expecting this particular brother to show up because somewhere in Port-au-Prince, his brother, his half-brother, is under the rubble, and they haven't been able to locate him yet. And yet he shows up to the airport to pick me up and others, our team. And I said, brother, what in the world are you doing here? He says, brother, we're here to serve you. We're here to serve you. I said, brother, you're... What? Your brother, part of the reason why we're here is to help you locate your brother. What are you doing here? You should be in Port-au-Prince helping out in, the, in some capacity. It says, brother, we're here to serve you. Think, what in the world? Why or how is it that people could, could do this kind of a thing? Who can find satisfaction and a sense of joy in the meeting of needs in other people. That is a spirit-empowered thing, beloved. A supernatural thing. These people are not looking for credit from anyone. They're there here on this earth to serve Christ. They live with an awareness that God has called them to a particular ministry and they carry it out. And they carry it out. See, in the Christian life, we're not always going to have the luxury of always getting the credit during the course of our life, right? We were watching Star Wars the other day and my wife pointed out, uh, post having watched Star Wars, that it's kind of interesting how in movies at the end, we're watch, sitting there watching the credits. And everybody that came out in that movie, even the most menial of roles, the person's name is on there, right? Rick Johnson, the guy at the ice cream parlor, right? He's on there. Mary Jane, the lady who was at the, at the particular place. Everybody has some credit on there. Their name is on there. Wouldn't it be fun if in the Christian life it was like that? 
The credit Sunday mornings would be coming up here in each of our names <laughs> with everything that we do, right? We make us feel pretty good. It's like, whoa, look at me, man. 17 ministries. Woo! Right? That doesn't happen in real life, does it? Can I remind you and I that God does take notice, beloved? God is watching. God is pleased when you minister selflessly, devoted to selflessness for his glory and the good of your brethren. And so if you're feeling discouraged, remember that the God of the universe takes notice and that if there's anyone who understands having laid down his life without receiving credit from people who rejected him, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The ultimate selfless servant who did not receive appreciation from most people that he ministered to, even those that he healed. Can I remind you, God is watching, beloved. Be devoted to selfless service. As we look to this new year, there are going to be so many opportunities before us, individually, as families, as individuals, as a corporate body. Arm yourself with the right mindset that the Lord may greatly use you for His glory and the good of His people. Arm yourself with this mindset, with an attitude of joy in your service, expecting suffering, being committed to faithfulness because you know that God has called you and commissioned you for a particular task and service to do good works that He prepared beforehand for you. And do it devoted to selflessness. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Oh, Lord, we are excited about a new year. And not excited, Lord, because we did not have our own share of weaknesses and failings the previous year, Lord, but because you are a great God who empowers us. You are a great God who has not left us confused, has not left us, Lord, wondering what it is that you want us to be about here on this earth, Lord. Help us to remember that we have your precious word that we have the power of your spirit, that we have Christ's blueprint in your word for how we ought to do ministry and serve one another. Help us to have the right mindset. Help us to be people who are cultivating an attitude of joy. Help us to be people who in our ministries, Lord, are cultivating faithfulness, Lord, selflessness, and that we would embrace suffering because it will come in a broken world and in a broken church. But we know that one day Christ is coming and that all things will be made well, Lord, until then. Help us to be faithful, Lord, and arm ourselves with a Christ-exalting perspective in all that we do. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.